Uh, welcome everybody to this conversation um, with Daniel Thorson, my guest and friend, and really happy to be chatting with you today, Daniel on Buddhist Geeks. Yeah, really happy to be here. Um, and I, I just want to, maybe we could start, I could share a little bit of the background of how we became friends, what I remember about it anyway, and uh, feel free to fill in the pieces that I miss. So I'm not sure what year it was, but it was probably, yeah, several years ago. And you'd moved to Boulder, Colorado, and had li been listening to Buddhist Geeks, and we somehow got connected. I think you maybe you reached out, and we got together, and we're hanging out. And I just immediately really fellow traveler on the path, and I re really appreciated the sincerity of your practice and you know, dedication mm -hmm. and all the nerdy things you were doing. And I think you'd just come recently from um, Zuccotti Park and we're kind of doing some pretty interesting political activist work there. And that's not something that's yep. been a big part of my background. So I was really also fascinated to hear about, you know, what you were doing and what was happening. Um, and then eventually you, uh, the opportunity came for you to kind of join yeah. the Buddhist Geeks project and you were working uh, with Emily, my wife and Kelly Bearer, and we were all working together at a certain phase of the project where we had like uh, some money and a lot of dreams and yeah. <laughs> we're uh, kind of putting on the conferences and, you know, really trying to kind of make a big splash mm -hmm. with the project. And you're really essential at that, at that point mm -hmm. um, and, and became a really central key friend and team member in the project. What am I missing? Well, the part that you're missing, is, I suppose, is before I actually got to know you, which is that you know, I think it was senior year in college, so 2008, 2009, I started listening to Buddhist Geeks and just totally fell in love. It was my doorway into the practice and into the Dharma. And, and, you know, it was really the only community that I felt like I had. And so I think by the time that you met me, I had been sort of transformed through listening into the kind of person, you know, that you probably would enjoy being around because I was to some degree a product of <laughs> all the conversations you'd been having. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it, Buddhist Geeks was one of the most significant things in my life. You know, it, it listening to it and particularly hearing your conversations with Daniel Ingram convinced me to go and live in a Goenka mm. center at the time for about a year and a half and sort of, uh, in that case, practice, uh, contraband dharma you know in the in the goenka center um uh, trying to gun for stream entry and that kind of thing were you like doing the noting practice uh in the goenka center that's like a that's like a serious no-no right oh yeah they would have totally thrown me out if they had known <laughs> and and <laughs> more than that more than that so one i read mastering the core teachings so much that i the binding fell out you know like it was just i destroyed the book just by reading it so often but then i tore out pages about the dark night and slipped them in to their library, which was just full of poly canon, you know, uh, kind of conservative Buddhist interpretations of what the practice is. I like to think that, you know, some yogi some years later was flipping through the Abhidharma and found Daniel's description of the dark night. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's awesome! So you're putting like little dharmic Easter eggs in the in the library at the Goenka yep. Center. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that's, that's right. hilarious, man! Yeah, so so we met at a time where you were kind of like fully Buddhist geeking, mm -hmm. and then we, you know, together we really worked on creating the Buddhist Geeks Community Project, um, which was our kind of virtual sangha. 
mm-hmm. project and went through like multiple iterations around that. That was really interesting. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that now, uh, given um, I, I did see you writing a little bit. Of, or you talked a little bit to Anne Gleig about that recently, um, and it appears in her new book, American Dharma. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just curious if you wanted to share any reflections on that, because it's been a while. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I have talked about it uh, since that time. And I think we've both come to similar conclusions, which, you know, when we were working on that project together, I was fresh out of, as you said, uh, Occupy Wall Street and Zuccotti Park. And so it was kind of really high on the idea, the an ideal of decentralized Mm. power structures. And I think that I to the degree that I had the power to organize that community, design that community to reflect a decentralized power structure. And, and, you know, there were beautiful aspects to that and things that we did there that I'm really proud of, actually. And, and I know continue to exist in the form of the Dharma mechanics community. Uh, you know, things like... Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they still do. I, I believe they still do like the open practice periods and have kind of decentralized yes. open space style discussions and things like that. So, you know, there, there were things that we discovered that were really interesting and useful and, and lasted. And I think we failed to account for the role of natural power hierarchies, especially when it comes to Dharma practice, where some people just have done it longer, know more, are experts in certain areas. And there's a way in which it's kind of, you need to acknowledge that, I think, uh, in order to for everything to sort of flow well and for mm-hmm. there not to be then sort of implicit power structures that can be quite toxic in community environments. Yeah. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, I remember as, as an organizer of that project, you know, feeling this sort of weird tension between on the one hand being the designer of the space, which implicitly meant that I had a huge amount of power and authority to shape the experience of what was happening while at this, while also not being really engaged Mm. in the community as a teacher, which was a role that I was growing into at the time. And it felt like this very strange thing where I was on the one hand trying to be a peer uh, and on the other hand was shaping and creating and designing and, you know, inviting in people to be part of this community. So I clearly wasn't a peer uh, on that level. Exactly. And that, that yeah. to me was the contradiction that ended up kind of break, breaking the whole thing. And, and really, I was like, oh, I, I don't really even want to be part of my own community. It doesn't feel good <laughs> to be part of this community. That's, yeah. that's a problem. Even though there were some great things happening. Yeah, I think you would probably agree that I certainly learned a tremendous amount about power and how it flows and how to structure yeah. it and how to acknowledge it and how to it's it's not something you can sweep under the carpet. You you can't you can't just create a context in which you know everybody's equal and there's no power structure. Like that doesn't that's not real. That doesn't happen. Yeah to that point, it's like, it doesn't acknowledge that whoever it is that's creating, designing or enforcing, or, you know, whoever is behind that attempt to create this natural decentralized, uh, egalitarian space isn't actually equal. Mm -hmm. And that those environments don't just arise usually by themselves in nature. Um, (laughs) for long, I'd say they don't just like, I mean, they happen like Mm -hmm. between friends and Mm -hmm. between, Mm -hmm. you know, colleagues. And I think they do happen, but I don't, I don't think they happen in such an intentional way as we were, we were trying. 
Yeah, I I agree completely. I think, you know, now I'm more in, instead of this kind of hierarchical structure versus decentralized or non-hierarchical structure, I think that's actually kind of a red herring. And what we really need to pay attention to is power dynamics, right? And and those can express themselves in an infinite variety of forms, seemingly. And we just need to become better and more aware of how they're flowing in any kind of context. And for speaking personally in, in the context of the Buddhist geek community, you know, I think looking back on it, not that I necessarily could have done differently, but I feel like I didn't step into my power, which I should have, in order to play the role that I was being invited into in that context. And so I kind of abdicated my power and that subtly affected, I think, everybody's experience of the community. Yeah, that's so interesting. I like the word abdicate because decentralization is an interesting word because it's you know about taking something that was cent- that was previously centralized and kind of pushing it out, you know. But to me the the other word that I really like from from network theory, um we talk about network theory a lot is distributing. You know, it's like distributing authority or distributing power, which you know what and what is the difference between abdicating and distributing? Or what is the difference between like giving over or relinquishing one's power and empowering others? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, so 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 the cool th- we're going to talk about this a lot, I think, uh, directly and indirectly. Um, you know, maybe maybe to finish up the thread of like, you know, your story. So when this phase of Buddhist geeks came to a close, and we were, I think, really unsuccessful in a certain way at at realizing this vision that we had, this decentralized kind of egalitarian vision um, and ran out of money and, you know, had a kind of crisis. Um, you know, the, at that point, um, we moved to North Carolina, um, kind of had to, you know, let, let everyone go because we, and including ourselves and um, start back over again. And, and at that point, you ended up uh, at, at a certain point moving, uh, maybe pretty, pretty soon after that, moving to this interesting place to practice with this guy named Soryu For, For All and a bunch of other uh, weird misfits. Um, I don't think at the time it was called the Monastic Academy. It had a different name. It's called that now. Yeah. Well, its name has always been, as far as I know, Maple, which stands for the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. Oh, cool. But it used to come under the name of the Center for Mindful Learning. And now it's just called the Monastic Academy. Okay. But yeah, I, I, I moved there pretty directly after uh, I left Buddhist Geeks. And, you know, I, I, I found Soryu. Um, through Buddhist Geeks. Uh, part one of the shows that we did in the community was me uh, interviewing different teachers. And one of the teachers we interviewed was Soryu, and he talked all about this community that he was building. And I, I remember at the end of that interview, I was really inspired by his vision. And I said, well, you know, Soryu, this sounds so great. If I didn't have this amazing job that I love, I would probably move out there and, and join you. But, you know, I, I can't because I'm doing this work. <laughs> and, and so, you know, uh, sometime later. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you were there for what, like a couple years uh, in the first in the first go around? Yeah, I was here for uh, two years, two years. And we started out in Burlington, Vermont. The community used to be located in an old uh, or what is still a Quaker meeting house. The Quaker meeting house that Soryu, back when he was Teal Scott, grew up attending every Sunday. Hmm. They had like room upstairs that he somehow persuaded them to <laughs> let them use for this emerging organization. 
Uh, and then we moved while I was still here out to uh, Johnson, Vermont, to a larger location. And now we're in Lowell, Vermont, at a really beautiful, beautiful building in space and land. Nice. And you know, I, I've heard you talk about this, but I think it's just so fascinating to hear. You know, what is it like to be in any kind of immersive practice environment? But that one in particular, you know, which really emphasize both practice and work and, you know, responsibility and, you know, almost like it's described on the website as a, you know, it's like a mix of like traditional monastery and startup environment. Be curious if you could talk a bit about, you know, what, what were those couple of years like in terms of like the daily rhythms and the, you know, the, the purpose of the community and, you know, kind of what was it like being a, a modern monk or a postmodern monk or however you talk about that. For sure. Yeah. So the schedule alternates between what we call awakening weeks and responsibility weeks. Awakening weeks are pretty straightforward. It's just an intensive silent retreat. So you just, you know, meditate, eat, sleep, hear a Dharma talk, you know, you know the drill. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, and we do that once a month. So one, so one week a month you're on retreat. That's right. And occasionally we do other types of retreats. So like during the summer, we do a vision quest. Uh, we have somebody who it's from the Lakota tradition that comes out here. We go on out in the land and uh, spend a couple of days in the in the woods, essentially. No food, no water, mm. build a sweat lodge, the whole thing. Um, and then just today, we're about to begin another practice we do regularly, which is a immersive circling retreat, which is a form of authentic relating, which I think really got started in Boulder, Colorado, back when we lived there. And that's a completely different kind of practice. It's sometimes referred to as like interpersonal yep. meditation, all about connecting deeply with other people and kind of understanding how you show up in relationship. And so, you know, once a month, we do some kind of intensive practice period. And then the other weeks are responsibility weeks. So you get up at 4.30 or so, you chant and then meditate for an hour. And then you have an exercise period, you have breakfast, and then you work essentially from, say, 8.30 until 1. Uh, then you have lunch, and then you work some more. Then you have a little break. Then you meditate, uh, and then you chant, and then you go to bed and get a little bit less sleep than you, you'd like. <laughs> and that's how, that's how, how the days go uh, in responsibility weeks. And, and the work you do here varies, right? The, the residents, the monastics are responsible for the entire operation of this center. So everything from program development to cooking to setting up for retreats to, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm working on messaging and curriculum development. So the tasks are varied, but it's not really any different than working in a fast-moving nonprofit, startup nonprofit. And we use things like agile team development and stand-up meetings and all the things you would expect to see in that kind of context elsewhere. That's so interesting. So you're, as a resident, you're both engaged kind of like you would be if you're an employee uh, of a nonprofit, but at the same time, you're like a monk because, you know, there's no, there's no one cooking meals mm -hmm. uh, usually at nonprofits. Um, that's usually more at Google. <laughs> you find people cooking meals. Um, so it's, it sounds almost like, it, it sounds to me like a kind of modern monastery be, because the traditional monasteries, I mean, people were growing food and living there and in community and doing work, um, not the same kind of work that you're doing, which is so much more 
you know, digital and global and mm-hmm. you know, modern in its scope. Um, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like that traditional monastic vision married with or merged with modern life. Yeah, and that's the part that the kind of awakening weeks and the responsibility weeks doesn't really necessarily make clear is that this is all done in the context of community. You know, we work together, we practice together, we sleep in rooms, uh, the same rooms together, we eat together, we hang out together. You know, it's a really intensive experience of community, which, you know, is is what at least so I've been told monasteries used to be like, but like you said in a in a kind of modern context. That's really, I think, in a lot of ways, my experience has been that it's the community that really potentiates all of these elements, that living together in this way is, you know, Soryu used to say, it's like all of your, Mm -hmm. the dirt on your being kind of rubs up against the dirt of other people and it eventually washes off in his metaphor through the soap of the practice, right? So you, you get triggered inevitably by people that you're around because you're living together and you can't escape. And then you have to sit for an hour or you have to go into a week of silence together. And something happens there that's really powerful. And you end up feeling kind of cleansed because you have to meet these parts of yourself that typically, because we live such, in my opinion, atomized existences, we never really have to face. We can always kind of opt out of facing those parts of ourselves. Yeah, just uh, mute, mute or block the things we don't want to see. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I most love about being here is that there's a real sense of like, we're in this together. We're in this together and it's going to suck and it's going to be amazing. And it's all part of it. And it's a nice segue into the other part of the story I know, which is that at some point you decided to take a leave from this environment and living in this way and kind of strike out on your own and do other things. And um, you started your podcast Emerge at this point, and you're doing all kinds of interesting and weird stuff um, at this point. I'm curious, now that you have just recently moved back to the Monastic Academy and are living there and working there and doing your thing there again, curious to hear like if you've had enough time to reflect on what that phase of life was like and and how to me it seemed like you were going through a process of kind of differentiation or find some something in yourself that was like apart from that environment but now it seems like you're kind of bringing it back in Mm -hmm. i don't know if that seems accurate it's pretty accurate i think when i left the sense that i was leaving with was that there were certain things i wanted to explore that i i couldn't really explore at the monastic academy and so when I left, I, I did a lot of movement practice. I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of exploring of other kinds of approaches, uh, reading a lot of philosophy. And, and it really felt like my, the structure of my mind and my being had changed as a result of being at the academy for two years, mm-hmm. but that other parts of me had to kind of catch up. And, and I think furthermore, you know, Soryu is trained in, in the Zen tradition. And so we didn't really have very many conceptual frameworks for exactly what was happening to us. And he doesn't really, you know, right. that's just not a part of that tradition. So I kind of left and filled in the blanks with, honestly, with conversations on my podcast. I would just like be really curious about something or be struggling with something. And I'd find, I'd use my podcast as an excuse to speak with people about those things that I was struggling with. In the process, I learned a lot that now I'm bringing back, you know, to the monastery. 
And that is actually how it seems to go uh, here at the academy. People typically stay for two, maybe three years. They leave for two or three years and then often come back and come back with a new perspective and a mm. deeper sense of value for what exactly is happening here. Um, and I think that's actually really important given the vision of this place to be, you know, a, a modern monastery, right? Like to, to, to be involved in the context of our culture and uh, all of the changes that, you know, you've talked about on this podcast and I cover on mine. Is that leaving and coming back? Is that something that's sort of culturally okay? I mean, obviously it's structurally okay because you're, you were able to do it, but is it, is it sort of like, yeah. How is the culture there around people leaving and coming? Is that kind of accepted or does it create tension or how, how does that play out? It's accepted. I mean, it's part of, you know, there's not really, I think, unlike in traditional monastic cultures where there was this sense that the life of a monastic was was a path right. for a human. Uh, that's not really present in our culture. And so right now, I think most people come here with the idea of it being a kind of transformative experience for a year or two. Uh, and it is. <laughs> but, you know, then you leave and you realize perhaps, oh, actually that was, I would like to spend more time there. And I think we're actually forging what the path of a monastic looks like in our culture now. And I don't think we really know exactly what that looks like. Does it mean that you go for two years, then go out for two years, then come back for two years? Maybe. We just don't know yet. What about having kids and a family? Well, yeah, that's something we're looking into. You know, um, what would it be like to have uh, support structures for that available, so that if you were a monastic for a decade, you could sort of graduate out into a surrounding community that was still deeply invested in the practice, but had enough space to raise a family. And these are all, you know, part of the inquiry. I think of discovering what mon monasticism can be and needs to be for this time. That's cool. Yeah, a little bit of what you said just reminded me of um, kind of the model that, that operates in Thailand, where often young men in particular go for something like a year, often um, become monks for a year. And then that's like part of their cultural, you know, growing up process. I don't know that it happens all the time for everyone, but I know it's a pretty common thing. And in a way, that it, it kind of reminded me a little of the kind of coming and going and getting a taste for and feel for this different way of living and then bringing that into life. Although I'm sure the monastic model they're working with in Thailand is probably quite a bit different than what you're doing. Yeah. I, I, and that's what I suspect it will end up look like, looking like is yeah. that there will be people like myself who are drawn to this kind of lifestyle for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. But most people will come for a year, maybe after college, um, and, and get a really deep and profound experience and, and kind of embed the practice deeply into their life. And then they'll go out and live life, you know, in the world. Uh, and I think if that's what it becomes, that's great. That's really great. This is, as a, just an educational experience, a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. That doesn't, in my mind, sort of like diminish the profundity of the monastic experience. So I, I just want to recommend everyone open their browsers right now and type in whatisemerging.com. And there 
you're going to find what is basically a newly launched um, community platform and also the home of Daniel's podcast by the same name. And I believe uh, you can find your podcast under the podcast section and probably under any podcast app too. You've been doing this podcast now for is it two or three years. It's been going for a while. Yeah, about three years. I took a, I took a mm. break, but for about three years. I started three years ago. Yeah, you got to take a break to see what what wants to emerge next. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I took a break originally because I, I had I had had a conversation that I then released that I later felt was uh, immoral to put out in the world, and I had a kind of crisis related to that, and decided to just stop because I didn't feel like I could adequately tell what was. Um, uh, you know, signal and what was noise, or even more so, what was immoral and what was unethical. What, can you can you say more about that? What what what, what do you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I won't name the specific conversation, um, but it had to do with um, certain political questions that were alive for me at the time. I had a kind of opening up to uh, just a different level of complexity of these kinds of topics when I left the monastery. And I, I just wasn't confident in my own perspective. And so I, I, I kind of just felt like I had to not speak in public for a little bit because mm. uh, I didn't want to say something that would create bad consequences. Yeah, that makes sense. I've noticed a kind of theme emerging in your podcast recently that's really interesting and that's something i definitely want to talk about notice this general theme of kind of meta modernism arising that's the phrase that gets thrown around in, in kind of geeky philosophical circles maybe i don't know if you could share a bit about your kind of current understanding of that movement or that and how that relates to what you're doing with emerge because it seems like it's become a kind of central part like even as i scroll through and look at the you know the titles it's like the 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 phrase meta comes up a lot whether it's metaphysics or meta modern or meta you know there's a lot of there's a lot of meta uh things going on and some really interesting people that you've talked to that are really you know um emerging <laughs> I, can't get, <laughs> can't get I mean they are though they're they're they, you're living up to the name they're emerging voices people that you know are putting stuff out there like what's coming to mind uh right now one of my favorite episodes has been the one that you had with uh uh hansi uh hansi yeah. freinacht i'm not sure how to say his name yep. um about meta modern politics and the book the listening society which is something i hadn't heard of um but ended up finding was like a really interesting and different and fresh look at um, politics. Yeah, well, so I think I would preface this discussion and just say, like, I think this whole space is kind of being figured out now. Like, there's a very natural dialogical process where, by which we discover what, what, what exactly we're talking about and, and what the nature of this approach is. For me personally, I think of it as the move after postmodern deconstructionism, specifically moving into a space where we, we see that these kind of grand narrative truth claims, yes, we can't make them, 
but we can sort of playfully create new narrative structures that help us be or, or support us in being called forth to live lives of service that are desperately needed on the world in the world right now. Um, and, and so part of this whole move for me at least is is acknowledging the reality of collapse, right? And, which is a kind of narrative, narrative structure that that informs the way we live our lives. So you know, it's in that space that we start to really be invited to reflect on all the systems, all the ways that we've decided to organize ourselves, that we decided to structure our consciousness, that we decided to structure our communities, and really take a fresh look at them. And, and knowing that there's no one single right way to do anything, instead, we get to play with a myriad of ways, all vectoring towards in my opinion, uh, you know, the development and flourishing of all, all life. Uh, and, and that's kind of what, what it means to me, you know, is, is, is opening up this space mm -hmm. of emerging and uh, alive dialogical exploration that we all get to participate in mm -hmm. by virtue of being alive now uh, and taking what is beautiful from the past and and kind of remixing it into new ecologies of practice and and uh, approach and trying to see if we can create something that will help us create a future that actually works. When you say collapse, um, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So what's in my mind is, um, have, I don't know if you've read this, the deep adaptation paper by Jem Bendel. I just had him on, on the podcast. Have you read that? Not yet. No, not yet, but I've seen it um, circulating. Yeah. Well, essentially, the idea is that, look, all of these models of climate change, it turns out that it's happening much quicker than we thought it would. It turns out that things are getting quite bad. And, and organizations like the IPCC, it, 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 we have good reason to suspect they're about five years behind for various reasons, including the length of time it takes to get uh, peer-reviewed studies. And, and so you kind of have to take a closer look. You have to do the research on your own. And what you discover is that uh, we are headed to a really, or we're in a very dire position, really dire position. And um, it's not a question for our grandchildren. It's a question for us now. How are we going to reorganize ourselves to meet the challenges of this time. Uh, at least that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. So you're talking also mostly in terms of like our ecology, like in the environment, the climate. Yeah. And specifically the thing that seems most dangerous that I've heard brought up in a number of these conversations I've had is uh, agriculture. Uh, so, you know, we can kind of build seawalls and things like that. But if agriculture starts to really suffer as a downstream consequence of the fraying of these complex systems, then uh, food prices go up, social unrest begins, and there's a cascading kind of systems collapse that becomes real possible. It's hard to respond to complex problems if our fundamental structures give way. Yeah, yeah. Or impossible, probably. Yeah, it's 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 kind of it's kind of a mindfuck, and uh, it's part of the reason why I moved back to the monastery. Uh, to be honest, is is one to just live in in community because I think that's one of the things that, for me, looking at this for a while, caused me to acknowledge as being extremely valuable. 
and also um, wanting to or, or or seeing that like the the kind of dream of our culture that I had actually left the monastery in some sense to before to live into like oh I'll just get a job and have a relationship and do the thing is actually on its way out like it's not gonna happen that's not realistic anymore as a path i don't see it as realistic anymore as a path it's no longer realistic for me uh, based on the way i see the world and so that opens up a lot of possibility as it closes down a lot of as it closes down a lot so okay this is something i've been you know really has been really on my mind and heart to um you know the ipcc report that came out not too long ago you know that which as you said was quite conservative by pretty much everyone's you know standards it's and yet super alarming even in, in its conservatism that along with you know the uh the orange buffoon um really <laughs> you know i think for a lot of folks that are tuned into these systems level conversations um is really alarming and really i mean really terrifying too and I've been both feeling that terror and fear and, you know, um, we have a three-year-old and it's not just, like you said, it's not just our grandkids it's, and it's not just his life, although it is especially his life, but it's ours now that we're, ha- that we're really having to, to kind of deal with this and work with this as a reality. And there's a few things I, I just want to throw out, you know, in, um, in response to this one is going back to your point about modeling. I think it's really interesting having been both at one point in my earlier days a transhumanist for a while and really studying a lot of kind of transhumanist work, Ray Kurzweil, Kevin Kelly, these kind of thinkers who really mm. had the same kind of thing to say about technology trends that all of the different reports and trends are always tend to be conservative and miss that these things are actually occurring in exponential ways, so they're, they're nonlinear change. And the vision there on that side is like very utopian and technology is gonna liberate us and solve all of our problems and give birth to you know, biotech that will make us immortal and nanotech which will allow us to abundantly you know, transform the world however we want to and AI, strong AI that'll you know, kind of guide us through these whatever and eventually which will merge with and you know, transcend into the cloud. And that for me, for a long time, it was exciting. But at a certain point, I started hanging out with people like David Loy, and um, he, he was the first person you had on Emerge. You know, folks that are really talking about the other side of this, which is the climate change part, you know, the way that global warming is on itself on an exponential curve. Now, part of what I, I realized looking at both of these things, I talked to David Loy about this one day. I was like, you know, these two stories, one that seems kind of utopic to me and that the other seems kind of apocalyptic. They both tend to lead to certainty about knowing what the future holds and then starting to respond to that picture. And, you know, what you said about deconstructive postmodernism is interesting to me because at that phase or stage of development, it's like we start to see that our modeling is modeling. It's not something we can fully rely on because we don't have all of the information. We don't know how our ecosystem or how our technology or our culture, we don't know enough to fully predict what's going to happen. And yet 
we do know enough to, to be like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, or to be like, oh, yay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's really interesting how those two, the apocalyptic and the utopic, to me, they almost are like their exponentials are almost like clashing or colliding into each other. These two different models, which say very opposite things. Like yeah. one, it's going to be totally fine. We're going to transition to the solar economy and electric. You know, we're going to be able to take, you know, technology to you know decarbonize the blah 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 and then the other side is like it's too late we've already crossed the point of no return yeah and you know we've got to now just kind of deal with you know the grief of losing our civilization yes and to me i'm i've felt identified with both of those and at the moment i'm i guess i'm in a phase of questioning both of those scripts you know the utopian script and the apocalyptic script yes and just wondering, you know, where is the reality actually in, in all of this? And I don't want to spend time being stuck in like analyzing and philosophizing about it because there are things we need to do regardless of what the reality is going to be. Like there's, st we still need to take action and do things. And I mean, it seems like the one thing that makes sense not to do is continue the status quo regardless. <laughs> anyway, just curious what you, what you think about all of that. Yeah, well, it's been interesting as I've had conversations on the podcast about collapse. I've been exploring and being introduced into communities around which this is their main identity, is like acknowledging and being, we might say, certain about, in the words of the Deep Adaptation paper, the inevitable near-term collapse of social systems due to climate change. And those places are often not very fun places to hang out in because <laughs> <laughs> not maybe not surprisingly <laughs> uh, yeah. but but like you know and and my sense is you know in terms of having these conversations that that's like you what you say it's collapsing into certainty in any case that's the real danger here yes because then we foreclose mm. on all kinds of possibilities and opportunities that we won't see because we, we think we know what's going on in either case, right? If we think everything's going to be groovy forever, or if we think things are inevitably going to be doomed, uh, it, it seems to me based on my world uh, that what is needed now is actually a kind of sensitivity and uncertainty and a willingness to engage with the opportunities of the moment independent of how they clash or don't with our mental models of how the world is, that will be what helps us kind of guide the thread through the eye of the needle at this point. And I would also say, you know, there's that saying like, trust in Allah, but tie up your camel. Like it probably is a good idea to get some solar panels and to have like some food stored, you know, that there's no harm in that and spending a little bit of money, just being a little bit more well-prepared. Because this is a real, I mean, like, do your research, you know, this is a real thing. And it's a really big thing. And if it's true, everything needs to change. And if we can be uncertain about it, then we can play with how things might change in order so that it doesn't have the worst impacts that we fear it might. And and the other the other thought that comes to mind is, you know, Buckminster Fuller's famous saying, that's utopia or oblivion. The, the thing that I like about these conversations of collapse is that in the way that I look at it, there's a way in which the destiny of collapse is sort of written into the DNA of our system, 
into, you know, and it's as simple as saying like, we have an infinite growth system on a finite planet, right? At some point, something's got to give. And so then we actually need to really consider like, what kind of system could we create that doesn't have that logic at the basis of it? And that's a really interesting conversation. And I think that conversation actually opens us up into contemplating real utopia style possibilities, or I prefer the term like utopia-ing, right? Like moving towards some kind of more utopic vision of what civilization could be if it were going to sustain humanity on a finite planet. Yeah. And when I, when I, you know, when I, every time I think about utopia and one person's utopias, another person's or group's dystopia. So, you know, that I think is the beauty of deconstructing um, these grand narratives is that, you know, if there is one grand narrative that takes over, let's say capitalism, yeah, then, you know, look at what happens and it's good for some people and some groups and terrible for others. I almost want, do you, do you feel like in this kind of transition that we're in social, you know, this civilizational transition, this planetary transition that there's space for multiple utopia, utopia ings, <laughs> multiple, you know, competing, uh, collaborating visions and systems, or is it something we have to like all get on board with the same thing or both? That's a big and abstract question, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really like the idea of there being many different competing visions trying to actually compete for people, right? And this is something that I had Max Borders on the show, who's an author. I forget the name of the book. Well, in any case, you can look up the episode with Max Borders. But there's this idea of self-organizing collectives experimenting with different rule sets and kind of governing themselves differently and competing for human resources. Yes. Right? What would that be like? And what kind of novel systems design would that give rise to? That seems like a really beautiful vision to me and kind of escapes this hegemonic ideology problem you mentioned. Again, you know, who knows what it's going to look like? I think I am optimistic when I look at the visions of the people who are creating these crypto projects that are Right. That's what, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. Like distributed autonomous organizations could quickly become basically countries, right? Or at least functionally how we think of countries. You, you, you give them money, they provide services. Yeah. They're like transnational. I mean, in the same way that Facebook is a transnational community or network yeah. already. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting too, because I noticed the, uh, you know, in the crypto world, this sort of initial excitement and just total utopic thinking and and all of that. It's like we're in a different phase, it seems like now um, in, oh, yeah. in the crypto <laughs> emergence. And and now that the whole thing is like Bitcoin is taking all this power. This is not, you know, this is not workable. It's being, blockchains are being hacked. Um, you know, the whole thing is kind of, um, and, you know, look at the systems and, and look at the these decentralized, in quotes, systems and how wealth is distributed in these actual crypto networks. It's actually mm -hmm. much less, there's much less equality in crypto networks than there are even in our really bad, unequal yes. current systems. So mm -hmm. there's obviously like a lot of problems. And I think I, I'm seeing a lot of people pointing that out. And I think in a way, dismissing what for me was the initial excitement with the whole thing, which was, hey, we can actually 
create new protocols, new yes. rules and agreements about how to organize or how to create things together and create new kinds of ecosystems around those protocols. Like that to me was such a huge deal because it opened up the possibility, like you said, of the different rule sets. We could decide how we want to structure our governance process and how we want to code in our economics and how we want to deal with you know a variety of other possible issues um you know that to me was what was most exciting and still is about the movement mm -hmm. and i see it still reflected in some projects but there's some yeah like i like you i feel some hope when i see that there might be some at least technological infrastructure that's being laid down or or that's possible for us to yes work with or use in responding to you know the dire news and i think you know there's that saying that people overestimate what technology can do in 2 years but underestimate what it can do in 10 and i think yes we're just so much in the early phase of this stuff it's it, they're trying to build a whole new meta system by which we can construct all the systems that govern the flows of human activity. Like it's going to take a little bit of time, you know, to work out the bugs. The directionality is, is I think, quite clear, right? And it's like what you say, building a kind of bricolage of, of like ways that we can structure our relationships, financial or otherwise, so that we can explore and experiment with new ways of collectivizing our, our efforts. And that's really exciting. I mean, that opens up just a whole world of possibilities yeah. and novel ways of creating collective intelligence that may be exactly what the world needs right now. I tend to agree with you on this point, even though I also try to check my idealism. But what I also really appreciate about this these crypto networks are that unlike nation states, you know, you can choose which networks to be part of, uh, at least, you know, so long as we can maintain our net neutrality. That to me is interesting because there's never been a time where people can really choose what kind of paradigmatic structure they're going to live within. You know, even probably in, tri I mean, in tribal cultures, you know, there's only so far you can go. You can't go to any tribe you want to. And so, and you can't learn every language or whatever. So that to me is pretty interesting that, you know, like you said, there's a possibility of different networks <laughs> vying for people's time, energy, attention, resources, and that some of these, I really hope they, they do, like we'll start focusing on what's really most important, not just like solving the problem of how do we like send money cheaper you know, using digital means, but like, how do we live differently and incentivize our communities differently? And how do we interact differently with other networks that like those kind of questions are really fascinating. And it seems like they're just starting to kind of penetrate the global conversation about this stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, who knows, you know, it's, it's hard to escape your filter bubble, but certainly I see it coming up more and more. I also think that this whole topic of collapse is kind of like a forcing function on these subsidiary conversations about how we structure ourselves. Yes. Right. Like if we see quite clearly that the way we're doing things, business as usual, is not going to cut it, then we're released into this new space of playing with the structures. That is, I think, why these conversations about metamodernism or metasystematicity are, are so kind of up right now is that... I think there's my, my sense, 
looking in as a kind of observer of culture is that there there's some kind of tipping point that we've been reaching over the last year or two where people are really kind of grokking that things can't go on like this. I mean, yeah, every, I mean, every, I mean, it seems like a lot of people are getting this. I mean, across our, I mean, for, certainly in our country, I mean, the populist up, you know, uprising that brought Trump and into the white house and nearly brought Bernie Sanders into, you know, to the democratic nomination. I mean, that was a huge, huge deal. Yeah. I, and as you say, I think we're in a planetary transition or, or, or uh, somebody I've had on my, my show, uh, Zach Stein, who is just one of the most brilliant people I've ever spoken with, calls the time we're in the time between worlds, which I think is a really evocative way of putting it because it kind of reveals to us the unique responsibility of our era, which is to kind of navigate this uncertain territory into a future that can actually work in an ongoing way, or uh, fail, fail to rise to that challenge. At least that's how I uh, think of it in my life, because that that narrative, you know, knowing that that's not true, but still using that narrative kind of calls me forth into my life in a way that I can feel really proud of. I, I like that because it doesn't rely on the certainty of knowing what's going to happen, but it does put the the process of change, you know, the profundity of that change in center yeah that's really cool i I like that the time between worlds yeah i met uh i didn't meet zach but he was part of the integral theory community that was involved in in um, the mid-aughts and he was kind of one of the darlings of that community um because because of the stuff he was writing and thinking about um didn't he study did he study with uh keegan robert keegan i don't know that he studied with keegan he may have Uh, i know he's quite close with ken wilbur okay and and just plug a little bit about Zach Stein because I, I just so appreciate him. He, he did just release a book called uh, Education in a Time Between Worlds, which is just amazing. A really incredible book, ostensibly about education, but really about everything. And so I highly recommend checking that out. Okay, cool. That's a, that's a good resource. It seems to me, you know, Integral Theory was the first community that was part of that. I think you could call it like a meta, a meta theory community or a community that was gathered around an attempt to sort of reconstruct meaning after the ruins of postmodernism. And that's how Wilbur framed his integral meta theory for sure. Now, I, you know, looking back, I wasn't relating to it as a meta theory at the time. I was relating to it, you know, it was like early 20 something as a theory that could in my mind, explain things. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and looking back, I'm like, of course I was young, <laughs> you know, if, if there is anything to this idea of development <laughs> and it takes time. Um, I've only recently, like you said, that the forcing function of, you know, this current situation and that for me has been a real eye opener and it's force it for me, it forced me to kind of ask questions about my own deconstructive tendencies and sort of look at like, well, what are the, what's the impact of deconstructing systems right now? Because right now it seems like these systems, these that we've relied on, you know, our democratic systems and our economic systems, they are being attacked from multiple directions right now. I mean, are they being eroded from multiple directions from the bottom, you know, from below, you know, like Trump to me, I mean, he doesn't seem to understand the systems he's undermining or have any respect or care for them. So that tells me he isn't taking a meta view on these systems and trying to 
deconstruct them. He's just like, uh, you know, he's just running around <laughs> ramming into things. <laughs> Or hard to know what he's doing, but yeah, yeah, hard to know. But I mean, like from the outside, it looks like he has. I don't, no I, yeah, I don't think he's, he's 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 a, a you know meta theoretic operator for sure. <laughs> let, let, I think we can be clear about that. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's just we'll agree on that. But you know what I noticed was the tendency to like really see through the grand narratives and see how models are incomplete, you know, and and the way that they can't ever fully encapsulate what's happening. That in a way, I was over by overemphasizing that or by emphasizing that so much, I was actually, I'm helping to contribute to the breaking down of those systems, which on the one hand is good, you know, like these systems aren't working anymore. Like you said, they're, they're, they've led us to the edge of collapse. Yeah. But on the other hand, if we don't replace them with something, if we don't have a step to step onto while the other one falls away, that's not good. So it seemed to me that the the focus really should be on reconstructing or on focusing on what's next as opposed to just continuing to beat the dead horse, which I understand some people, you know, if it is a developmental sequence in any way, if adults have to go through these things, they can't just skip, skip stages or whatever, as Wilbur claims, then, you know, people have to go through that process still. But for me, it just felt like I, I no longer could um, spend my time and energy trying to deconstruct when when the stakes are so high for me too and and i wonder to what degree our, our culture is going through a similar kind of developmental journey and i wonder to what degree the the specter of collapse will be a kind of strange attractor that will pull people out of this kind of deconstructive habit into realizing that we need to make something that works you know, for the sake of our lives and the sake of our children's lives and for the sake of life on earth, you know, that, that that may be the kind of thing around which these efforts begin to constellate. And I think that that has a beautiful kind of, it has an elegant kind of uh, beauty to it. So I was hoping we could shift directions a little bit and talk about um, some of this meta theory stuff as it relates to Dharma and uh, kind of, I don't see Buddhism and Dharma being the same thing, mm. but uh, there's there's a relationship there um, and Buddhism. Now, we were talking before this episode about some of the critiques of Buddhism and Buddhist culture, especially, you know, for lack of a better term, Western Buddhist culture from the philosopher Slavoj Zizek. Mm -hmm. You were sharing with me that you really, at, at a certain point, when you were exposed to that critique, you were kind of defensive and disagreed and now yeah. and and now you've come to see that, that that in fact that critique is really accurate and 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 useful to to kind of be aware of um I, you know i just talked to ann glegg who wrote this american dharma book which is really relates to this um buddhism beyond modernity i wonder if you could talk a bit about yeah your understanding of of zizek's critique um which which itself seems like a kind of to me it does seem like a kind of deconstructive or postmodern critique of what in the religious studies world is called Buddhist modernism. But I'm um, curious what, you know, what, what your take is on, on, on that and how like that critique has informed you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my understanding of Zizek's critique is something like uh, Buddhism could be considered 
the hegemonic ideology of Western capitalism. And the kind of Mm-hmm. shorthand version is it, it, it makes you chilled out while you participate in systems that are destroying the planet. That's problematic. Um, and it has a lot of symmetry, I think, with the McMindfulness critique coming out of like David Loy and Ron Purser. Yeah. Um, and Mostly Ron Purser. Oh, mostly point. Ron Purser. I think, Dave, I think David's distanced himself from that critique. Okay. okay. Uh, but, but Ron has uh, t- taken it up as his kind of clarion call. Yeah. And so, you know, I think I, when I hear that critique, I more think of it as being true when these practices are, as, as you say, unbundled, mm. right? When you are just practicing mindfulness as if it's this self-existing thing outside of an ecology of practices, which include ethical precepts, right livelihood, you know, the whole, the whole eightfold path, right? It's, it's an eightfold path. It's not onefold path plus seven. It's an eightfold path. And it, that's an ecology of practices that transform you. Uh, when you take one out and kind of decontextualize it, it can serve this kind of perverse function, I think, in our culture right now to anesthetize you to the uh, downstream consequences of certain systems, that you may very well be participating in. And so that, I think, for me, you know, at the time when I first heard that critique, I actually wrote my senior philosophy paper rebutting that, that argument. Um, and, and now, having mm. spent some time in a monastery and more time in practice, see the, see the validity in it and see the truth in it. I am personally concerned with how mindfulness is sort of being distributed and taught in our culture at this time, uh, because of all those reasons. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, this is a huge topic and yeah, it's, for me, it's one of like the most interesting critiques, you know, and interesting things that's come out of like what Anglic would, I think, call postmodern Buddhism, because there is such a clear awareness of systems and the impact of systems on individuals and on collectives. Whereas before that, you know, the individual was really seen as the central like unit in society. It's like it's all about the individual, you know, individual rights and individual experience. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's you know, when, when we leave that behind, you know, which is it's very clearly missing a lot and can't explain so much about life or about human behavior and human relationships. That critique becomes, yeah, really important because it's like, why are we doing this? You know, why are you paying attention to your breath or noticing thoughts? Is it just to, you know, like I've said one time, it's like the world is ending, but at least I can breathe through it. You know, it's like, okay, that is one of the functions of mind, deep mindfulness practices to be okay with death. Yeah. But yeah. if, like you said, if being okay with death is also anesthetizing us to the actual problems that are <laughs> leading to that death, yeah. that is <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's like being in the fucking matrix <laughs> yeah. tube and just going along with the simulation, um, thinking that that's actually the best way to live. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and so my one of my main inquiries right now is like so we're 
I, I think we're kind of in the midst of this process of unbundling the various technologies of transformation and representing them in various contexts. And you know, I don't want to paint it like that's all bad. I think there's some real beauty and goodness there. Um, but I think the, the, the interesting uh, thing is how are we going to rebundle them together in a new way that actually transforms our entire experience of reality such that we become people who are able to serve in this time between worlds. For me, that means at the very least uh, bundling together, say, mindfulness practice with some kind of historical cultural critique of you know, where we're at, why we do these practices, what they're actually used for. There, there have to be these kinds of things that are presenced when we teach, as we teach. And in that way, I think these practices actually take on a different flavor and do a different thing when they have that richer context. And so that, that's one of my major curiosities. And it's part of why I came back to the monastery is to help develop those kinds of curriculums. And I think it's an open question. I don't know that anybody's really figured it out yet. I think we're all in the midst of figuring it out together now. And, and I think it's one of the most pressing needs of our time is to kind of build, you might say, like new religions, right? That are actually trustworthy and that can actually bring us together in a new way and, and make coherent collectives that can do good work in the world and transform their experience. It's a fun thing to do and it's something we need to do. Yeah. And it's something, you know, as humans, we've been doing um, for quite a while. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, um, I, you know, when I was a religious studies student, we studied new religious movements. And I was shocked at how many new religious movements there have been just like in the 20th century. You know, there's like hundreds and thousands of new religions that mm. have popped up. And it seems like maybe that trend is just accelerating. I think you're using the term religion in the way that I tend to use it, which is not as, you know, like thinking about the monotheistic traditions or like the big five religions or whatever, but it's thinking about, you know, having a, a deep kind of faith in something, you know, in the way things are, and then kind of trying to live in a way that's like somehow honors that deep intuition about the nature of reality. And there's so many, you know, different aspects about that. But this is this for me. This comes from uh, Alexander Bard's work, you know, the idea that theology, which is like our deepest mm. faith in something which we can't prove, um, you know, including the the faith that reality is material, that'd be like a, a theology, um, that that gives rise to religion uh, and to mm. philosophy, yes, um, and to science, you know, that that. Anyway, that's so to when I think when I think about religion, I think about that, like that our mm. deepest, you know, intuition, our deepest faith about the nature of, of this. So we've been doing that for a while. Yeah, we've been doing it for a while. I think when I use that word, and I'm not really sure if that's the best word to use or not for for what I'm talking about, but what what I'm what I'm pointing to is an ecology of practices and ideas that support us in together transforming ourselves to become different than we are. And that includes a lot of different things. You know, it's not just mindfulness. It's not just a certain practice. It's, it's a, the relationship between the ideas that creates a kind of robust basis out of which to build communities and to build a life of meaningfulness. And so 
call it a religion, call it whatever you want, but it's the thing that I think we need now. It reminds me of, you know, you've all know Harari's term, imagine realities. We have to have these sort of consensually agreed upon realities, these cultures in order to do stuff, you know, and to coordinate and to collaborate and to, you know, to make things happen. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And, and what comes to mind is like, there's no escape from that, right? It's not like you can just cease participating in imagined realities. We're, we're stuck right. in the position of having to create and imagine realities. And so now we're kind of, and, and this is similar, I think, to the kind of metamodern move. Like we're, we're seeing that clearly. We're liberated to play with different forms. And that's a really exciting place to be in. I think in that way, it's significantly different than a lot of the forms that may have come in the past, which were uh, at least, you know, uh, given to be absolute or the way things are. My sense is that these new forms will take it for granted that this is just a way of looking, you know, a way of doing it. And here are the reasons why we think it's a good way of doing it, you know, moving from that basis instead of an absolutist kind of fundamentalist perspective. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the piece that you mentioned about, uh, and it ties in with the monastery and, you know, and, and the whole thing of like retrieval, you know, how do we retrieve the things from the past that we've lost that we need? Mm -hmm. You know, to me, there's the piece of self authorship, you know, and of being able to kind of write, write one's own, write one's own stories or write one's stories together. And that's, that is so liberating and exciting. It's like, oh, I don't just have to fall into this and and just do it, or I don't have to just critique everything and deconstruct everything and have the religion of no religion. Mm. So that that seems really powerful on the one hand, but then it also seems to me like we're working with, and this this may be, um, you know, this isn't a very popular name to bring up, but I will do it anyway. This to me relates to Jordan Peterson and kind of part of why he's become to me popular because he's you know, his background in Jungian psychology and archetypes, you know, the idea that these archetypes transcend individuals and they're rooted in biology. And that's how he describes an archetype. Is it something that's, it's so grooved down in biology that it becomes like a persistent pattern that like, we're also, it's not that we're totally liberated and totally free to do whatever the fuck we want. Like we still have mm -hmm. to have a certain amount of oxygen in the atmosphere and, you know, like there's still th constraints and things that are, they take mm. longer time to re to like mess with and th they're unforeseen consequences when we do. And to me, that's part of it too, is like working with that kind of tension between on the one hand, I don't feel I have to be, you have to be a slave to these ideologies. But on the other hand, there are these things about being human, about being on the earth, about being in the environment that I can't just like imagine my way out of. That working with that, that like those constraints is part of the, also the creative process. And, and that's where to me the, the term Dharma becomes more relevant again. For, for me, it becomes relevant because it's like, well, Dharma, what is Dharma? Um, on one hand, Dharma is like, this like repository of teachings, you know, quote unquote teachings of the Buddha. But, you know, the other, for me, the other meaning of Dharma, it's, it's like, it's a living expression response of our wakefulness. And to me, it's like both, like we have, you know, I have to respond to the situation as best I can, given what I know, my life, uh, the global situation, like all these levels of, of reality. <laughs> uh, and 
I don't, you know, I'm so glad that I have access to this, these repositories of knowledge and that I know about the monastic form and that I can kind of bring those things to bear on the situation because these old traditions did figure stuff out that is, I wouldn't say perennial, like as in it's ultimate and absolute and not changing, but it's perennial-ish. You know, it's perennial enough that it's got to be taken into account. So that's that's how I would describe metadharma. You know, it's kind of recognizing like the dharma is what we make it, but, um, you know, there's limits and constraints and, and, and there's some timeless timelessness to the truths that they're not going to go out of style, you know, when Zizek critiques them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, what what comes to mind is um, one of the guests I had on the show, James Cerwillo, uh, wrote a book called Metamodern Leadership. And on the cover of that book is uh, the god Janus, uh, who he proposes as kind of like the symbol of metamodernity, which is the Janus is the two-faced god. One face is looking back mm. in time. And the other is looking forward into the future. And it's this kind of, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. dynamic retrieval and creation that the, only, that the stuckness arises when we think we know where, how it's going to go. You know, and, and I think this is, again, uh, evocative of David Chapman's term, like the fluid mode of moving dynamically between these different ways of seeing, always vectoring towards more, shall we say, like, meaningfulness or efficacy or whatever there's some kind of pragmatism there but yeah i i i feel you on that i think it's it's if you if you just go for the new you're going to trip over yourself if you just go for the old you're going to be very unprepared for what's coming right 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 yeah yeah exactly and that and you know that's that seems to be a lot of what people are you know there's a lot of communities and a lot of people that are trying to retreat instead of retrieve and they're like prepping for doomsday in a way that's, you know, it's like, okay, that's great. Good for you. Um, <laughs> is it, is it good for them? <laughs> but it's so clearly, so, yeah, yeah. we'll see who knows, but <laughs> yeah. it's all about them. That's for sure. Um, and so, you know, that's, that, that concerns me, you know, pe people retreating instead of retrieving. It concerns me too. when. And this is the spirit of Silicon Valley I see, and I'm I've become very critical of Silicon Valley thought, you know, which is not just a physical location, but it's like an it's a culture and ideology that's spread out across the world, and it's it's like a really dominant ideology right now, which is you know that we can just transcend anything we want, and we don't have to, you know, we can disrupt anything, even including our biological substrate, our bodies. You know, it's like, come on, <laughs> come on. I mean, I can understand why people want to transcend their bodies because it's hard to be in a body. But, you know, for us meditators and, you know, who really make being in the body our goal and not all meditators do that, but <laughs> for those that are, it's like, no, dude, this is it. This is our home. Why, why do you yeah. want to go to Mars when we can't even yeah. take care of our own home? Why do you want to transcend the body when you can't even be in it? Um, yeah. Sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, having, having spent periods of my life with like spending eight, eight hours in front of a computer a day or more, uh, I, I get it. 
Yeah, I <laughs> to a certain degree, like I, I can too. see that perspective. Yeah, uh, I know, yeah, but it's but, but it's really dangerous when it has so much power. It's behind extremely it. dangerous. Yeah, it's extremely dangerous, and I, I think when it comes to these kinds of views, um, what is scary to me is what they also fail to transcend. Right, like what they don't believe they are operating according to and and you know there's so much about our culture and about our time that is just woven into our consciousness that if you don't take as object if you don't like critique it or deconstruct it you can create thinking that you're free to create but you're actually doing the will of that of that pattern and don't fool yourself into thinking you've deprogrammed yourself when you've just deprogrammed certain parts of yourself that actually make you yes. more dangerous. And so, you know, that that is also tricky because they, they, they're all about transcending limits, but then they actually don't see the very real ways in which they're, they are limited. Yeah, Wilbur used to talk about that as the Darth Vader move, um, you know, because it's like you've got this mm. tremendous intelligence and wisdom of, of the force and then used... On, in, on behalf of this really like stunted and emotionally tra traumatized, you know, like psyche. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that's, it's really scary when people have access to that level of, of influence and power, but are being driven by these like hidden, um, these hidden drives. The only reason that I feel like I can speak about that is because coming to the monastery, like that was just ripped away from me again and again and again were all these ways of seeing that I didn't even know that I was, you know, addicted to, in a sense, that I didn't even know that they mm. were perspectives that I was looking out on the world from. Yes. And, uh, yes. Yeah. you were so in, yeah, them. I was so in them. I had so taken them for granted and, and mm. it's such a blessing to have that be relieved from you painful though it is. But then, you know, ideally you come to a place of greater trustworthiness because you, you're actually aware of how you're operating more and more. Daniel, I can already hear the traditional Dharma people saying, well, isn't that what Buddhism is about anyway? <laughs> it, it, it is. And Buddhism arose in a particular cultural context and a particular historical context that also conditions the ways that it looks at the world. Right? And, we, and those need to be deconstructed as well, not in order to get rid of them, but in order to liberate our fluidity to move into them as we choose. Right? And, that, and I think that's... that's really key is 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 that the deconstruction can't just stop where we have sacred cows it has to go on to everything and then we can actually be liberated to create in a trustworthy way until we realize that uh yeah <laughs> until, we're yeah, until we can hit up against the next barrier <laughs> right yeah totally yeah absolutely absolutely and that's the and that's that's how it goes but that's not but, you know there's that's that's the situation yeah. we're in well, and that that to me seems like one of the distinctive qualities of a meta approach. It's like in the fluid mode, as you said, David Chapman's word. It's um, you know Wilbur. What I what I really I've been coming back and really appreciating a lot of his work lately. And and one of the things that seems like he was trying to do was trying to take a perspective on perspectives. Hmm. And you know he really fam I mean you know famously in the integral world talk talks about the first, second, and third person perspectives you know, that are built into our language and built into the our pronouns and built into our, you know, like really seem to be like one of those deeply embedded things where it's like, we can, we can see the world from like our eye perspective, like me, my, the interior of my subjective experience, but we can also talk 
where we're talking, you and I are talking and, and we are having a conversation and there's this intersubjective perspective. And then there's also science, you know, and technology and, you know, objective empirical study of the material world and external systems. And we can, you know, we can actually like take measurements and, you know, and model and map how these things work and come up with laws and mathematics to describe them and predict them. And like, that's true too. But that those different perspectives each have their own valid truth claims within them. And just the process of being able to identify and differentiate them while also acknowledging and honoring the truths within them. And really, clar- for me, what Wilbur did that's so brilliant, is he clarifies the, the way in which we tend to conflate or the, those different perspectives or dominate, try to dominate use one to dominate the others or ex- say that this is the most causative. Mm. You know, this perspective is the yeah. most fundamental. It's all consciousness only. Yeah. You know, everything is just arising yes. in my consciousness. That's like, you know, that's an old perspective. It's the Yogacara, yes. you know, Buddhist perspective. It's all mind. And that's like, from an integral perspective, Wilbur's perspective, that's, and it's a way of absolutizing that first person I perspective and extending that out into like all of reality. And that that's actually a really bad idea <laughs> because then it's like, well, good luck on trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to create a, you know, a culture or a, you know, or a systems yeah. that like honor certain things. Cause it's like, why bother? You know, it's just mind only. I'll just continue generating loving kindness. Yeah. And I think that's another aspect of this kind of meta modern Dharma or meta, <laughs> I don't know what meta, meta, meta something, uh, that is extremely relevant, which is um, resisting the natural tendency to reduce things into a certain aspect or interpretive lens on how reality functions. Yes. Yes. And learning to escape that at every turn is what opens up this infinitude of ways of looking that is such a much more rich place to play in than trying to fit everything into the it box or the we box or the I box. That's certainly in my world, like what is most interesting, I think, about this kind of move after postmodernity is that because we've deconstructed everything, then we are freed into this garden of infinite interpretations. Like we can we can choose to look at things in all kinds of different ways. We're liberated in that way. I think Ken Wilber did that a really good job of reducing some of the fixation that was present when he was writing. And I also think he probably created a system that created some fixation for, for folks down the line, which, of course. you know, <laughs> I guess is probably inevitable when you try to create a comprehensive yeah. system, but you know, yes. that's yes. how it goes. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I, when I left the integral scene, I, you know, the question for me was like how to explore some of these ideas in a way that didn't rely on this very hyper-technical theory, you know, where every time Wilbur would explain anything or, or have to answer any question at all, he had to first evoke, you know, like a 30 to 60 minute background theoretical info, info session to, mm-hmm. in order to understand how he was responding. And I understand that's the nature of philosophy, you know, often in terms of practicalness, not so, help, <laughs> not so practical, uh, as a, as a way of like sharing, sharing something, these insights with other people. So for me, it was, the Buddhist geeks was a question of how to explore integral theory without using the words integral theory. 
uh, or using any of the words. Uh, and to me, that that was actually a process of deconstructing and um, dismantling all the, the ideas about about the stuff that I had. One of the most interesting conversations in this whole kind of meta space for me is I've had a number of times with somebody named Bonita Roy. And what she talks about is how all of these sort of meta systems, and she talks about how, you know, integral met, what was it, critical realism? I think it was like Roy Baskar's whole system that was kind of trying to do a similar thing. And that uh, they met together at a conference and, you know, kind of tried to duke it out, but then decided actually what we need to do is create a new meta perspective called like integral critical realism, you know, and just build this, this, <laughs> this abstraction layer higher. And what she saw, and I think what she really profoundly uh, represents is this different kind of backward step into releasing complexity, mm -hmm. into getting down to the kind of source code of what's actually going on and building up from there. Instead of trying to take a kind of bird's eye perspective, you actually get down in the dirt. And that's a much less complex way of, you know, you don't, you don't create comprehensive systems. Instead, you kind of explore together what we already are moving out of. And it's, it's in the same territory as the whole meta kind of uh, take on things, but it has a very different feel. And so when she answers questions, for instance, she doesn't need to explain for 30 minutes. She just kind of like, says something really provocative that she then waits to see how you respond to. And then she responds to that. And there's this kind of dialectic that's very alive. I really appreciate that take because my sense is also that the, a lot of these kind of meta-theoretic systems only really appeal to nerdy dudes usually. <laughs> I mean, not, not always. There's a demographic there. Somehow we have to find a way to make these kinds of perspectives available to more people. And there's an embodied sense to the way that I see her representing some of these ideas that I really love. I really love and uh, respect and am trying to learn from. Coming back down from Meadowland for a moment. Um. <laughs> but it's so safe up here. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can see everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wondered if there's anything else, you know, kind of wrapping up this conversation, which has been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, just grateful that you've continued to branch out and do new things. And it's cool for me because I'm I'm kind of like a, I, I would say, and I don't know if you would characterize it this way, but in, in some ways I, I feel like you were a friend and 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 for some time I, th I feel like I was a kind of mentor to you, although I'm not much older mentor. Mm -hmm. 100%, yeah. So for me, I it's really cool to see the process of seeing someone go off and do their own thing and being able to learn from them. Um, and that's like been a really rewarding part of stepping into more this mentoring role and, you know, seeing that happen more and more and, and getting more trust that like, I don't have to be afraid of other people's bigness, um, that it's not going to diminish me in a, and it's actually the opposite. It's going to enhance and really like, pay back <laughs> it's a bad analogy given our <laughs> critiques of capitalism but it's gonna pay back dividends yeah, yeah. you know and um yeah so anyway i just really appreciate that i've learned a lot from yeah thanks vince i mean you know we had a silent retreat a couple of weeks ago so i practiced this conversation many times <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> no, <laughs> not, not, not in the least. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and right. I don't think I can express how, how meaningful it is for me to be on the show and, and how meaningful this show and, and Buddhist geeks in general has been for me and my development. Uh, and there's something, yeah, really significant. Um, I feel very honored actually to, to be a part of this kind of, I think of it as a canon, right? Like this is these conversations that you've had have completely transformed my life, completely transformed my life. Like my life is a result of listening to these conversations, you know, to now get to come back, so to speak, and, and actually add my voice to the mix is really, um, yeah. like I feel my whole body is, is tingling Beautiful. just even talking about it. Just deeply meaningful for me. So I, I appreciate the opportunity and all the opportunities that, you know, I've been able to explore with you over the years. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.